1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Juan Flores Andejas. He's head of the Paul Bayrock Institute of Economic History at the University of Geneva. And he's the author of two recently published books. The first one is Sovereign Debt Diplomacies, Rethinking Sovereign Debt From Colonial Empires to Hegemony. And the second one is Moral Hazard and Financial, Legal, and Economic Perspective. In both of these books, he is co-editor with um, a couple of co-authors. We're going to talk about that in a bit, uh, but let me first say hi to Juan. Hi, Juan. Thanks for being here with us.
0: Hi, Javier. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: So before talking about the books I would like to hear more about you so I know you for for a while already but um, but give us some background of um, of your life and your career where are you from when did you decide um, when did you decided to get involved in academia why did you? Think that economic history was an interesting field. Tell us a bit about how did you end up being the scholar that you are today?
0: Yeah, so that's a that's a long story. No, I'm I'm from Mexico City originally, uh, and I'm an economist. So my undergrad is from economics, uh, and then I did my PhD at in Paris in Sciences Po Paris, you know, and also in also in applied economics. Um, then at some moment, uh, from my different courses uh, and interests, uh, more and more, I was uh, pushed to, uh, to economic history. Uh, I had the impression that pretty much of the core about our way we think about economics today uh, is pretty much related with history. You know? So, you know, when the country countries actually become underdeveloped? when they, uh, they decide to push certain amount or groups of economic policies, you know, trade, uh, colonialism and all that. And I, those were topics that I found very interesting and fascinating uh, that were pretty much in line with uh, what I wanted to do. And what I want to do is really to understand about why, you know, there's the typical cliche question about why why some countries are rich and why those are poor. And more and more, the the, the, the responses that I found were related uh, with the literature and economic history. You know? And my best courses, I would say, when I was in, in Paris doing my PhD were, uh, were in, uh, in economic history. So uh, in, in a sense, I, were, I was pretty much pushed by my interest and then by my by my professors and by the literature and uh, and then there there was another major factor which is um, the discovery of archives no i have never done archives so i'm i'm not a historian so i didn't really learn it but so uh, when I started to go to the archives back in, well, it was in Paris, actually. So, uh, you know, I started going to the Crédit Lyonnais. Crédit Lyonnais, it was one of the most important banks back in the, well, the beginning, you know, late 19th century. And the Crédit Lyonnais, they had lots of documents about their investments in Latin America, you no know, and particularly in Argentina. So I started my research on Argentina. because Argentina back then was supposed to be the like the United States of South America, you know. And so I started to look at the documents, and they were great because they had lots of statistics, lots of correspondence, the way people perceive the country, and also about financial crisis. You know, and, you know, I, I started my PhD in the late 1990s, beginning of the 2000s. And so we were pretty much then interested in the financial crisis. No? It was the moment of financial liberalization. Uh, you know, the debates about capital controls, about the benefits and costs of foreign investment. And so more and more I got involved into this literature and I was discovering the archives and, you know, what French investors thought about Argentina, the future of Argentina, the future of Latin America, you know, how they proceed, for instance, also the political situation in Mexico and Porfirio Diaz and so on. So I got pretty involved into all these kind of questions. And then I decided to do my, first my, uh, my, my, my master dissertation and then or my second master dissertation, and then my PhD on financial crisis in Latin America, from the late nineteenth century up to nineteen fourteen. No, and so uh, it was pretty much you know combining my own interest in economics and economic development with what I discovered, which is to do my research in archives. No, and see all these old documents and you know untouched documents. I think I was the first person to look at this. Uh, these old papers and so i i I just got fascinated about these issues now then, then of course i discovered that it was not that simple you know to convince people about what you think you discovered about your arguments and you know and then develop a theory and so on It's something that comes afterwards it just i just follow my my, my my interest and i think that you know those those kind of um you know um Let's say archival um, discoveries, and then the fact that uh, they I linked it with the problems of development and um, financial crisis in Latin America. I think that uh, that created interest both in Europe and in and Latin America, and in Mexico. Uh, I thought I, I found like a market, and uh, in a sense, uh, I, I was happy with what, what what I was doing, and I'm still happy. I think it was like the very the very beginning of a career, so it's it's more than twenty years now. No? And uh, I still work in in a lot of senses in the main in the same topics, so I, I I guess at some moment like it's it's something that enlightening, you know? and so that's that's the way I started.
1: Yeah, yeah. But so let me ask you something. a bit in that line, when you describe how you realize that your research had this market both in Latin America and in, in Europe, um, I wonder how is um that interaction between the two, um, like parts of academia, right? So they're somewhat disconnected, you would assume, right? Academia in Latin American, academia in Europe. You have been exposed to both, uh, both as a student, you were telling me that you studied in Mexico and then in Europe, but uh, I know that you've been also a uh, visiting professor in Latin America, so you're familiar with uh, with the setting. How do you compare the two environments? Uh, What are the bridges between them? Do you think that there's some potential synergies that are not being uh, exploded? I don't know, I would like to hear your impression about the interaction between Latin America and and Europe. Mm -hmm. I think
0: both academic worlds are very different. So in a lot of senses, they are very disconnected, meaning that, you know, you have a national setting. And then, I mean, even if we look about Europe, uh, if we talk about Europe and we talk about Latin America, of course you have every time each national gauge which is different. No, I may start talking about Mexico and you will tell me, you know, Colombia is different. So, no. So let's, let, let's say that there, there is also a, a principal component analysis that has, has to be done. No? So I am talking about averages and about common common trends. So in, in that regard, I still think that we, we, we could do this analysis and say, you know, in, in Europe, there are certain common elements and in Latin America, there are also certain common elements. And those are different. You know? So I, I, I would say that um, Europe is pretty much concerned about certain topics. And if we look about economic history... Uh, you know, industrialization and migrations and, you know, the, the, the effects of uh, colonial expansionism and so on, whereas in Latin America, you know, there are the other topics, no? uh, the, the, the effects of colonialism for another perspective, but also, you know, political instability, the effects of uh, bad institutions and so on. So in a sense, each region has its own interest, but within each interest, you still have common ground. No, in this and this common ground, as I said, there are many things that can be communicated, and where there can be a lots of interactions. No, and I was talking about colonialism. And, you know, I mean, Europeans could think about colonialism because they think that that's a major element when they talk about industrialization. No, and you know, where where do we be, receive the commodities or? You know what's what's the effect of having these territories or uh, having more trade with this specific region? You know, with India, or, you know, Northern Africa in the case of the French and so on. In Mexico, we would talk about colonialism, but mainly for, with Spain or with Portugal in another period, and then we would see how globalization worked in the 19th century. Well, but but there are still some common, um, you know, threads, and we 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 still have common analytical frameworks. Um, you know, we have all these conferences where we discuss these kinds of issues. We 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 talk about conditions of um, life, conditions and wages, and 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 we see what the other is doing. I think more and more. Um, Whereas perhaps in the 1980s still, you know, we, we had our specific publications, it was, it was much more difficult to get access to other publications uh, beyond, the, you know, the, the national the national publication or those that are the most known, for instance, let's say Journal of Economic History and so on. Less known journals were more difficult to get access to, you know? And now it's not, not more the case. With internet, you can you can almost get access to anything. I mean, of course, that depends upon the resources that each university has. But in general, I would say that many of the publications are available via internet for most of the people. So that that creates more both you know a common language, and then you know that's reinforced by this common interest. Even if we have different perspectives, no. So Europeans would think about industrialization. We would think about the, our, the causes of underdevelopment. But it it's still Two sides of the same coin, you know? and so in, in that regard, I would say that um, you know that there are there are many many ways to to, uh, to coordinate, to cooperate, and also to to hear to each other. I, I would say that there is a there there is an evolution towards more communication, towards um let's say uh more findings of common common interest, and 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 therefore. I, I would say that in a sense, academic globalization, we, we can talk about academic globalization, it's ongoing you no? Know? So perhaps in, in terms of trade, they will go backwards. Perhaps, I don't know mm-hmm. I mean, what's uh, happening in the world. But I would say that academic academic globalization, for the good and for the bad, it's still ongoing. No. So um and, and I'm happy about that. I I share both cultures of academic worlds. I mean I, I like it in Europe. I like to, 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 to talk to Italians and French and so on and they all have their own also national particularities. But I love it also to go to Brazil or to Uruguay, to Argentina and talk about my my, my things and hear to them I think that that's just right. That's a true global community. <laughs> And I, I I think that well the pandemic had uh, perverse effects, but Zoom also opened other other possibilities. So in, in that regard, I, I I think we will still find our our way to to continue to be global. You know?
1: Right, right. Let's get to the 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 books that you recently published because I think they highlight for fairly well what you're describing this ability to talk to this global audience, both in Europe and and not only Latin America, but uh, other parts of uh, what you could call the, the global South. Um, because for instance, in sovereign debt diplomacies, which by the way, you edited with uh, Pierre Penette, um you explore a bit that tension between borrowers and creditors. And that usually means different countries in this too, like spectrums of, of global, uh, power dynamics. Um, why don't we talk a bit about that, But but why don't we start with the most basics? Why do you argue that sovereign debt is special, right? Why, why do we need an entire book about sovereign debt and, uh, one that fits to a larger type of debt? Yeah. So, um, okay. I see. Um,
0: Perhaps before answering to your question, I I might go backwards about these tensions that you were naming and the other tension that I did not mention and which I found challenging, precisely for writing this book, um, was the fact that um, this is an interdisciplinary effort. So there are tensions not only um, between different geographic regions, there are tensions also between different uh, academic disciplines And so, uh, for instance, my co-author, so Pierre Penet, it's not only that he's French, but he's also a sociologist. You know? And that means that, I mean, there, is, there has to be a will also to engage into a dialogue with people from different social sciences, from different, different academic traditions you know, and backgrounds and so on. So that's that's one thing, you know? and the other is about sovereign debt. So sovereign debt, as 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 you might know, sovereign debt is it's a huge issue among economists. You no, know? and, and and sovereign debt is in particular. So it's debt. You know, you have a borrower, you have a creator, uh, and the particularity it is that you have a government which is a borrower. You no, know? so compared to a private credit uh, borrower it's very easy because if you know if a borrower does not pay a private borrower it's very easy you just sue him and you know there are courts and, and that's it no? you just say, say it's assets or uh, the goods or you know the car or whatever it is if it's a, it's a consumer just you know doesn't buy its uh its consumption anymore it's easy you just take it away you No, know? and you have the courts and you have the judges and everything every, every, the old system will support the creator with sovereign debt, it's a bit different. You no, know? you have a government, so it's it's it. There is no international uh, court which can arrange these kind of problems. You no, know? so you, you you have this what we call sovereign debt disputes. You no, know? so you have creators, you have borrowers, and every time in history we see that at some moment a government is no longer able to repay its debts as it has been stipulated in a contract. You no, know? so that that's one thing. So. So I, I mentioned contract, no, and you know we economists don't look at contracts. It's lawyers, so uh, you have to bring law scholars if you want to understand sovereign debt. No, so that's that's the first thing. And and the other thing is that okay, so sovereign debt is particular because you have governments and we have no international tribunal. The other main motivation behind, and I would say that's a major component of the book, is the fact that if you look at how sovereign disputes are taking place today and how they are solved today. And you talk to a historian, this historian will find a lot of um, similarities, parallels with how sovereign disputes were being solved in the past, um, with how um, creators had to manage these issues uh, at different times in history. And what we wanted to look at in this book is to see about uh, to see how dis- the, some of the disputes have been solved in a long-term perspective and whether they have been continuities and contrasts. And what you will find is that we actually have a lot of continuities. Oh. So the way Venezuela's sovereign debt has been managed, I would say there are many parallels with the 19th century. Oh. Or the way Greece, Greece, that is not an underdeveloped country, the way the European Union managed the sovereign debt crisis that Greece had in the 2010-11, is very similar to the way it was managed also in Greece back in the late 19th century. No, and so it's, 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 it's incredible that we have many. Patterns and ways in which we see and perceive sovereign debt that have to do with the past, you know, with a colonial political framework that still persists today. You no, know. and you know when we talk about sovereign debt, it's not only that you, you you talk about the market because there are many different consequences behind. And when we talk about these consequences, we you have to go beyond talking about only economic issues. You have to do you have to say something about politics, you have to say something about law, you have to say to say something about sociology. And therefore, Pierre, Penet and I, we believed that it would be interesting to look at these continuities particular and particular and, and, and yeah and differences in a multidisciplinary framework. And therefore we believed that it was a good idea to have this book and to bring together law scholars, sociologists, political scientists, historians, and so on, and to have a common dialogue about how should we analyze and deepen into these kind of issues. You no, know? and and that's this, the result is this book that you're that you're looking at. Um, let, yeah. Let, let, me,
1: let me ask you about those uh, patterns that you're describing. So, if you would have to um, mention those continuities. Um, what would be the most important ones? What things have been there since the 19th century that are still common practices in the way that sovereign debt disputes are dealt with? And why are the forces, or what are the forces that uh, sustain those continuities? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, of course. Yeah,
0: I think that's, that's very interesting. I would say there are two things. One, one continuity that we observe is a persistent effort by governments and creators to institutionalize the way we manage sovereign debt disputes. So you may think, for instance, contracts. You You had sovereign debt contracts, since at least what I know, and what we say in the book also, since at least the 19th century. So there are contracts. And it's very interesting because you, you have a contract, even if in principle, the state is, you know, is sovereign. You no? Know? So you, in principle, there is no way in which a national legal framework can do something about it. But you still have contracts and you have lawyers trying to you know, develop contracts in order to avoid any kind of risk in the future if a borrower does not pay its debts, okay? So that's one thing. And even today, we still have contracts and we manage or we discuss about how these contracts have to be uh, framed. You know? And we talk, for instance, about collective action clauses. You know? Of course, now today, the way we perceive sovereign immunity has changed. But still, we, we, we observe this fact that there is a, a willingness to have a contract. Despite the fact that, and, and I arrived arrive to this second continuity, that at the very end, what we do with sovereign debt is that we negotiate politically the way we solve sovereign debt disputes. So in a sense, even if we have contracts and even if we always wanted to have some institutional framework to deal with sovereign debt disputes and that we develop contracts and clauses and so on, at the very end, sovereign debt disputes it's about politics, no, and so today, if we think, for instance, about Venezuela, or we talk about the Chinese loans, or if we talk about the world back loans, it's all about politics, no. And if we look about the 19th century, the way sovereign debt disputes were solved, it was also about politics, no. So, if you think about Egypt, for instance, Egypt there was a sovereign debt dispute. So Egypt defaulted back in the 1870s and in 1870s. And because there was no solution into that sovereign debt dispute and because there was a geopolitical interest behind, at the very end, what we ended up with the establishment of a, of a colonial regime in Egypt. But it all started as a sovereign debt dispute. And you know you can see Mexico, for instance, 1861, 62 again there was a sovereignty dispute and again you have the french saying okay you know we have a particular interest a territorial interest in uh, in having some kind of a regime that is uh, friendly to us in mexico and so they managed to invade the country they have a new government to be established and they they started you know having a specific indirect control in Mexico, and in a sense, well, that did not work well, and then they 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 had to go back, and then the debt was repudiated. No, so in a sense, there was a political will to end up these sovereign debt disputes um, by having at the establishment of a pseudo-colonial regime. No, so in a sense, what we're doing is that we are putting together colonial colonialism, and colonial history with sovereign debt. No. And so the way the French manage Mexico's economy is not very different that the way in which you have these supervision bodies today, say in Greece or say by the IMF missions in the 1980s. So in a sense, there is a sense of control into other countries, public finances, other countries monetary policies. So in that regard, you know, you start you start with a sovereign debt dispute and that leads to a to a limit. Which could be extreme, to a uh, limit into sovereignty of the borrower. You know? So ext- when I say extreme, it's the establishment of a colonial regime. Now it's not that extreme, meaning we have no colonialism anymore in that regard, but we still have some kind of uh, of a limitation to say sovereignty of a specific country. You know? So you see, I, I I I start with from debts from an economic perspective, and I have to go into the political sphere. So I need a political scientist. I talk about contracts. So I I, I need a law scholar to explain me why we need contracts into this specific setting, knowing that we have a sovereign entity that is being the borrower. And we, we, we need a sociologist to understand all this social implication about the tools that are developed in order to have this link from sovereign debt into colonialism. You know? so, so that's why we, we, we think that it's very important to understand these continuities, that you need an interdisciplinary approach no. you know, to get all these different factors into one specific analysis.
1: So I I want to ask you a bit more about that, about the process of getting together the right team to think about this issue. Um, But before that, I would like to go deeper into these things that persisted and those that changed, right? So you described, for instance, how European European powers had this more... um, Let's say aggressive approach in the nineteenth century, and although today the approach remains quite interventionist, if you want, it is not that um, aggressive or violent. What are those discontinued? Is it only the level of and the acceptance of violence in the process, or what? What are the things that have changed? And why have they changed? Why why do you experience this? And 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 in the I don't know if you can only talk about two periods or more. I think you offer a more granular uh, chronology in the book. But tell us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good question, Javier. So, if I may say something that changed
0: a lot, it's it's the famous gunboat diplomacy. No, it's not that you know. There is a country that declares default, and you will have the gunboats the next day. No? and perhaps we had it sometimes in the past. No, and you had it, you know, with the U.S. in Central America at the beginning of the 20th century. We had had it with the British uh, British Empire in the 19th century, or even the French did the same. So, in a, in a sense, that kind of uh, resolutions to sovereign debt disputes. It's kind of the past, right? So, so I, I don't expect it to be the case today, or I, at least I hope it will not be the case. Now, 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 no, today, with today's times, we don't really know what to expect, right? Um, but let, what, what I mean, really, it strikes me a bit if I have to talk about one period where you had lots of changes, it was the post 1945 period, no. So in general, what, what what you saw in the nineteenth century—that's something that was pretty much common in the past—was the fact that in principle, a government of a creditor country, say Britain, France, uh, Prussia, or whatever it is, they would support its bondholders, and they would support it the more if there were also a geopolitical interest behind. You no, know? and that was very clear. So when when you when you see about forty-five. And about the period that uh, that uh, starts in in the, the post World War II period, would you observe it? It's that that's no longer the case, meaning the U.S. in the 1920s becomes the major crater country in the world. No. Then in the 1930s, you have a major wave of defaults, so there is the Great Depression and many governments are no longer able to repay its debts. No? And it's not only Latin America. No? You, you you talk about many different countries in the world, including also European countries, no? so lots of Eastern European countries, even Germany, Austria, and so on default on their debts. No? So that's that's a major thing. And then 45, so the war ends, and in a sense, you know, since in the late 1930s, there are also many different governments that think that they should be repaying their debts. You no, know? so there is a willingness from you know, U.S. bondholders, also European bondholders, and also different governments that you know these disputes have to be managed and resolved in you know, one way or the other. Okay, but this time, what it's very particular about this period is the fact that. Now you have the government of the United States uh, which should be traditionally supporting its bondholders, private investors mainly, that stops doing that. And for once they start supporting borrowers. No. And that's mainly one reason and it is first because there is a geopolitical interest which or whose name is World War II uh, and then it's a Cold War. No so and that's very important so that is no longer a major issue no that, that that that's the other part because that is no longer a priority for the us government um, it becomes just a thing that has to be solved one day one way or the other and um, the us is rather willing uh, to uh, look for political supports no talking about the, uh, the cold war and also to look for trade partners no you know, commodities and, you know, markets for the industrial goods and so on. And that means that the U.S. government becomes pretty much involved into the negotiations between private bondholders and governments, you know, borrowing governments in, from Europe or Latin America or whomever. And then the U.S. government believes that the priority should not be rather or should not be the repayment of debts, but should rather be the world's economic recovery. And they start pushing and exerting pressure upon its investors to have them accepting the offers from borrowers. So if you look at the terms and conditions under which these debt disputes were being solved, what you will see is that they were pretty much in advantage of borrowers. So Mexico, say, the government had in 1942 a uh, haircut, which would be um, the losses imposed upon investors of, of about 90%. So Mexico got away from uh, owing a dollar into owing only 10 cents. No. And that was only one country among a lot of others, no? including Germany. In 1953, uh, the Germans managed quite well. The amount of debt that they had to repay in the future, you know? and that was because debt was only one issue among many others. And the idea was to you know recover, uh, to recover, uh, have some recovery from the world economy, you know, have a boost on international trade and so on. So, in that regard, I would say that if politics is so important to explain how sovereign debt is resolved or debt disputes are, are resolved. Uh, well, for once, you had the major hegemonic power supporting rather borrowers because it wanted borrowers also to play the game and start doing trade by American exports, U.S. exports, and also um, support U.S. in its, let's say, Cold War or go along into their own geopolitical interests. So that, w- that was so specific. Because at some moment, that would start to change. And so you have the emergence of the IMF, the emergence of the World Bank, the emergence of the Export-Import Bank. And more and more, what you would observe is that these new institutions or these new entities would start conditioning their loans to having these countries or these borrowers having settled their disputes with investors. So you have the first loans from the IMF and the first loans from the World Bank to Brazil and Chile and so on. They were all conditioned upon having these countries having settled their disputes with investors, right? And in that regard, you, you see again that little by little, up to the 1960s and 70s, they start getting more and more power, becoming more and more important, developing what we now know as conditionality. And they're more and more, again, this all this setting all this framework would favor again creditors so i would say there is a small window in which things were different that was no longer so important what was important was economic recovery and therefore what you would see is that the balance of power between creditors and borrowers would go rather more in favor of the borrowers and that changed very quickly now if we arrive up to the 1980s and this major Latin American debt crisis, you see very clearly that, you know, this burden sharing from this um, economic and financial crisis in Latin America favored actually creditors rather than borrowers. So that's something that changed completely from this specific period period that was, you know, the post-World War II period.
1: Let me ask you something about that because it strikes me... um the, um, I guess, the position of specifically the US on favoring the borrowers. And I guess my question there is, what was the reaction of of the investors locally? I guess, like, how do you deal with a government that is not supporting you? It seems, and I would like also to hear a bit about this, how the emergence of the IMF and some other of these uh, international organizations were somewhat designed to kind of substitute other tools to still protect uh, this community of investors, but how was the, I guess, the communication or the relationship in the US between the investors and 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 the government, and how this related to the emergence of this of these organizations?
0: Yeah, so um, of course. Well, investors in the U.S., they were not happy of not having this report. So they lobbied the government quite a lot. Now. So this lobbying had not desired effect at the beginning, uh, precisely because of these priorities of the U.S. government towards rather international trade or promoting exports. So you have another group. If if we enter into this political economy analysis, you have exporters. No, you know, you 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 have the interest of the own U.S. government regarding its political aims and so on. And in that regard, investors were not as powerful as they have been before. But again, that changed rapidly. And for instance, um, I mean the, the traditional story here is the story of the export-import bank that starts. You know, um, having one specific target, and that was, was to uh, promote U.S. exports. You no, know? And that was the absolute priority. And that changed at some moment. And more and more investors pushed to have the Export-Import Bank conditioning its loans, having these settlements with, with investors. You no, know? So that was, that was one thing. So that was pretty much a result of lobbying. No, from from U.S. investors that they eventually led to an outcome. And That outcome was this conditioning from the Exporting World Bank towards, towards bor- borrowing governments. And the other was um, the major agent, I would say, is the World Bank. And it is the case of the World Bank that pretty much of its financing, at least at the very beginning, was that uh, the World Bank also issued bonds in international markets. And, um, you know, that meant that investors were support uh, were supposed to uh, finance the world bank, and the world bank would therefore not be willing to finance a borrower that in the first place does not pay the main financers of the World Bank, which is the investors. You know? So investors wanted the World Bank. You know, they were financing the World Bank uh, to support these countries, and therefore they have the power to impose upon the World Bank this idea that they have to condition their own loans to... Uh, to borrowing countries no so in a sense there, there there was this idea that the world bank was being financed by investors and then also the fact that investors could lobby the us government to continue pushing to have the export import bank conditioning its its loans to uh, to governments so we have to we have to recall that back in those days you did not have this market mechanism. you know if if today there is a government that does not repaid debts—it's very easy, you know. They are excluded from the bond market, no. So a government default is no longer able to to issue issue bonds, no. And that was pretty much the same as in the 19th century. In the post-45 period, it's very different because these financial markets are quite regulated and they are quite closed, no. Because you know, you know, the financial shape of the world was quite in a bad condition, no. So in that regard, that meant that the only way in which a government could obtain Foreign support was through um, through these major agencies, now World Bank, IMF, Export Import Bank, so public entities. Now, so you, that was the moment which we have the rights of the state. No, so that meant that it was quite easy to you know target these specific public entities and then you know ask them to you know put some pressure on these defaulting borrowers into dealing and, and managing their, their disputes with, with private investors and eventually that was that was the the revenge this time I would say of the creators and they, they obtained what they wanted. It's just that at the very moment, at the very beginning, well borrowers could get along in a relatively favorable way on a favorable position.
1: Yeah. Um- let me ask you something that I mean it goes uh, beyond your your book, but um, I've always been curious about this, and I'm not exactly sure how to um, how this even like fits into like the broader literature. But um, I want to hear your opinion. So there's this recent, um, um, I guess, sympathy for ideas that many people would label as. Uh, modern monetary theory that would argue that a state has pretty much complete flexibility to um, to issue debt in their own currency and the debt issues sound a trivial matter, right? And the whole narrative that you've been describing is how painful it can be to go to international markets and and be financed by them, right? So. I guess my question would be and this is not i i don't expect you to tell me like how theoretically you think about this but like is it that in the past um states were just stupid and didn't think that it was a good idea just to issue bonds locally what why would um any any state go to international markets and mm-hmm. I start to imagine that you're going to tell me that it's because local markets didn't exist, but I really want to know what, how you think about this. What's the evidence that it's around this? Is there a conversation around these issues now? Was there a conversation back then in the 19th century, for instance?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a super interesting and complex question. No?
0: So um, I would start saying that... Um, here we're talking a lot, or related with your question, we're talking a lot, a lot about financial underdevelopment, no? Because if, if you can if you can raise money in your own currency at a domestic level, of course that would be the ideal, no? Because one country that issues bonds or go and borrows abroad in dollars and euros and so on, on these foreign currencies there was always this exchange risk, you know? meaning at some moment, if you if your currency depreciates, you will have trouble. You know? So, IGLD, and if you see the financial development of many countries, including Scandinavian countries, you know, Scandinavian countries were pretty much frequent borrowers at the beginning of the 19th century. And then at some moment, they disappear. And they disappear from London and Paris, you know, the main international financial centers, because they could issue their bonds at the local level, you know? we then got the gold standard and it made no difference, but in a sense it was a difference. You know? And that meant that they could um, resort to their own local financial markets. Well, in, in cases of underdeveloped countries, that's not so easy. for us because precisely the capital markets are much more restrained, they're much uh, limited in their capacity to finance these governments. And also because the, the currencies are very unstable. No. And that leads to a major problem, which is known in the literature today as original sin. Original sin means precisely the fact that if you want to attract borrowers, you cannot do it in your own currency. You have to use a foreign currency now. So in, in a, a long history exists about these countries not being able to borrow in their own currency. And this is Mexico, Brazil, Chile, and any Latin American country that you might imagine. No. So these countries had to borrow in foreign currencies. And some moment, you know, there is a devaluation and there is a loss in the currency's value. And then, you know, because the government, the main revenue comes from, you know, local local resources. That means at some moment, the government will be unable to uh, to, uh, to repay its debts, mainly because, you know, the, the, the value in foreign currency of these local revenues, well, it falls. And then you're no longer able to repay the, the service of the debt, you know. Year after year, you have to pay something, right? Um, well, the interesting part about this is that at some moment in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, these underdeveloped countries started to actually issue bonds in international markets in its own, in their own currencies. So you have Chileans, Mexicans, Brazilians, mainly Brazilians or Chileans. Uh, they're issuing in Chicago, New York, and in Tokyo, so on there, Issuing bonds in their in their currency, so in a sense that that was an exit from this original sin story you know, for for once, and also partly because at some moment you know there were lots of liquidity, and here we're talking before the 2008 crisis, uh, that meant that investors internationally were looking for more risky assets you now, and that helped. You know, and you had two Brazilians and Chileans, so on. They they were they were issuing bonds internationally, bonds nominating their own currency. So in Chilean pesos, or Brazilian Rajas, or Mexican pesos, and so on. What happens? The thing is that you you, you don't resolve completely the fact that your currency is very volatile. You know? For many different reasons. There we should enter into why they are so volatile, but still they are very volatile. And when they are volatile and you know there there is a major event, an external shock, like an epidem- uh, the pandemic or a war, whatever it is, and then investors would look into safe assets. Um, it does not mean that you you got rid from this original sin story. Why? But because what these investors could do is just, you know, get rid of these currencies, you know, and they, they would sell these bonds and then move. To some safe assets, no, and they would they would buy US bonds or German bonds or Swiss bonds or whatever it is. So the result would be the same, meaning that at some moment the bonds denominated in reales or in Mexican PES or origin PES, they would fall. And obviously, if you want again to borrow, it would be very difficult. No. So in that regard, that's it's it's still a major problem, no. And I would say that the, the basic source, the fundamental source, is the fact that there are underdeveloped financial markets still in all these countries. So, if you want to get rid of these original sin problems, you have to develop your own financial and domestic markets. You no, know? and something that it's still to be done. I would say that even even if you see Brazil or Chile mainly, they have they have they have moved forward. They have do some they have done some progress. We're still very far away from the ideal setting, you no? Know? And the ideal setting is to have the government being able to do this consumption smoothing and be able to you know to borrow in hard times and then repay in good times, you no, know? like you know, the Germans or the Swiss and so on, you no? Know? And that's something that we still have to do. And we haven't been able to do that. Right. That's that's the major challenge I would say. In a few words in a very simplistic way. You know?
1: Right, right. Um I mean, it's very interesting that, and as you mentioned, like all the answers that um, you provide to these questions, they indeed involve the um, the perspective of not only economists but historians, legal scholars, sociologists, right? Like you describe markets as this. Not abstract entity, but as an institution that has a legal background and that uh, different agents perceive differently, and it has this not fully rational perspective behind that. Um, and what you're in your book, and not only solving that, but um, also in moral hazard, is bringing together a large group of scholars with different expertises and. I'm curious about what's the process behind that. Like, how do you first get to know who's the right people to be part of one of these volumes? How do you manage to keep it coherent without constraining too much the, the I guess, the creative process of, of each other? How does that work? Even like, and if you want to be completely intuitive about it, that, that'd be nice. Like, how do you, do you tell do you first gather the people and you tell them what to write? Do you know people that are working on different things and then you just pick them? Tell us a bit about that process of editing um, a collective volume. Yeah, that's a,
0: that's a good one. Um, I would say, first of all, um, it's perhaps about reading and being interested in what other colleagues from other fields are doing, you know, and precisely in the kind of subjects and topics that you're interested on. You know. So I, I, I would say, as an economist and as an economic historian, we have this you no know, pattern into looking into our own works, and we rarely look into what others are doing. You know, sociologists, political scientists, or law scholars even less. You no. Know. So at some at some moment. I mean, I would say the first thing is to, to, to break these frontiers because these are these are frontiers that we have only in our minds. And in in a sense, the fact that, you know, I, I I'm I'm pretty much, of course, interested in debt issues. And I know that there are people from other fields that are interested in those same issues, but they just look at it differently. Uh, and when and when you start reading their their text or, you know, their papers, their books and so on, you realize that in fact, you have lots of of things to learn from them, you no. Know? So that's that's the first. That there is an openness in of the spirit that you need to have, you no, know, in order to be willing to, to engage into a dialogue with with them. And then, so that that's that's the first thing. So to be familiar, or try to be familiar, even you, if you don't really understand everything and that you don't have all the background and so on. And wh- once you get starting them, then you start also. Um, Going to their conferences or start talking to them, on you know, even you know, within in the same faculty, in the same building, in the same university, you st- you start talking to them, and and then some at some moment you realize that the common ground it's bigger than what you had imagined for a beginning, no, and so. Um, to start talking to them, and I, I like, for instance, t- there are some law scholars that when you know when they talk to economists, they say, you know, I can't understand all your equations and all your elements, So just present me the toy bottle, tell me the intuition behind, and then you you would have a law scholar being being able to comment and say something about this model, you know, despite the fact that all, not all the math and not all not all the technicities will be understood. But even despite that, you will have them, you know, getting to the specific in, most important points because you have to, of course, at the very beginning, you have the right question, no? Once you get the right question, then you, you start to talk about these different approaches. And, and you know, then you, you, it's like, you know, the, the, there was a, a, a colleague of mine who said, you know, you economists are all, you know, these, these guys that are blind and they're, Try to describe the elephant, and you know, one will describe the uh, one the tail, and the other, you know, the, the ear, and the other. And every time it would be different. But when, once you start to talk to each other, you would realize it's it's just, it's the same animal, no? And so, at some moment, we when at least in Sovereign Depth, I, I got involved with uh, with all these lost scholars at first informally, and then at some moment we started to talk about all these continuities, and then with the historians we we talk about colonial studies and the fact that you know the and colonialism is so intertwined um and so, and so we started to create a group and 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 you know go to different conferences and uh, organize panels and so on and at some moment we thought it would be a good idea to have all these common you know Edited volume, uh, and at some moment we we had this idea to identify this the continuities, this this um, this contrasts, and put everything together, everybody together, and comment each other's work, and then and then you see that's actually quite fun, no? Because you really have first of all to be able to explain your main points to a wider audience, to people from different disciplines, and then to also to get these different challenging questions from these colleagues that you know they, they bring you out. Out of the box into into your which you know, in which you are in into and uh, and and then you, you realize it's it's interesting and it's rich and it, it it's challenging it's really challenging and I would say at, at the very end you're happy because you it's like you understand a different language. Uh, And so you, 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 you understand something, you learn something different and you, you, you go beyond what you were, you were thinking. I I think that's, that's very grateful. I'm very happy with it. I mean, I, I, I should be the guy to say that, but I'm very happy with the results.
1: (laughs) It is, it is a great book. Uh, Both of them are great books. I, I, I can tell you we're about to get to the end of our conversation, but, before that, there's this question that I asked all my guests, which is why writing a book and not doing something else with your life, right? Which probably would be writing an article, or maybe would be doing something fun with your life. But I would like to add a dimension to that question, considering and going back to the uh, the beginning of our conversation, how important do you think that the fact that you're in Europe has been for the decision of writing a book. I was talking to Thomas Piketty the other day and he said, you know, I think if I wouldn't have moved to France, probably I would have never decided to write the books that I wrote because the incentives that I had in the U S were aligned in a different direction. Um, Do you think that if you would have stayed in Mexico, for instance, you would have been writing this type of products, this type of books, or or you would be doing something something different uh-huh.
0: i think that's the most difficult question to answer um i mean I, I i couldn't say about the counterfactual so i don't i don't imagine these different lives but what i liked about writing a book is that you can really give it a thought uh, sometimes writing articles means that you have to move fast and you have to have one idea you have a limited space and so on whereas when you have a book you can also include into the analysis the different perspectives and the thoughts you've been having yourself in order to uh, to express something to willing to say something to the world now in that regards i would say deepening into my thoughts and um, explaining the analysis i'm doing it's all almost you know uh, having a thought loud Know, if you're, you're, you're talking and in that regard, I would say that going into a book rather than a paper or a short or a short text, it's, 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 it's much richer and much more interesting. You know? It's because you really have to deepen and, and then also face also the doubts that you have. You know? In a paper, you just scratch the idea and that's it. And that's, that, that's the idea and you have to convince the reader. And there is, there is no time, there is no, there is no space, there is no nothing. Well, you have an idea and you have to convince. And I would say that in a, in a book, you are you are more transparent into the fact that you have to take into account much more elements and you have, you have the space, you have the time. And um, in that regard, so you have the different approaches, perspectives. You, you can explain the discussion and, and the different debates that are in the literature and you can do it that completely, you know, openly uh, and in the way you understand it. So in that in that regard, I would say that, that the book has a major advantage uh, over everything else. And uh, so uh, now that I discovered, because in a sense, it this disputes, uh, Sovereign their diplomacy was was my first book. You no, know? and so I discovered while well, I was talking to the other authors, my co-author, and also writing myself these different chapters, I discovered that I could say many more things that I would have been able to, to say in, a, in an article. So in that regard, I, I'm, I'm happy to experience and I, I, I'm, I will repeat definitively. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I definitely recommend.
1: Uh-huh. Great, Juan. And I'm very happy that you took the risk to write a book. Um, so Sorrowing the Diplomas is a fascinating book. I was very glad of having the chance to, to read it. I highly recommend. I learn a lot, and I learn a lot talking uh, to you today. Um, let me thank you again, and see you. See you soon. Yeah, thank you, Herbert. Thank you for this kind and interesting interview.